Good afternoon. It is a joy to be here today. Such a blessing to be able to worship God together with our brothers and sisters. Uh, I want you to know I'm very encouraged by you. Encouraged to, to have John and Tanya with us now. Encouraged to have Kyle visiting with us. Um, and very, very thankful um, for the, the opportunity that we have here to, to work together in the work of the Lord. Today I want to talk about something that uh, if I were to pick one lesson in my life that I think has been most impactful to me in the last five years, um, it would be what we're going to talk about today. And that, that is the power of expectations. It, it's deeply impacted me and my view towards myself and my view towards Aaron and my view towards people that I work with, whether they be brethren or evangelistic contacts. And I think it would be uh, helpful for us to discuss as well. In 1963, uh, there was a psychologist named Robert Rosenthal who did an experiment with lab rats in which he labeled some rats maize bright rats and some maize dull. And then he brought in a group of students and he told them that the maize bright rats were ones that were bred from rats who showed a particular talent at navigating mazes. And the maize doll, well, they were bred from other rats that uh, showed no real talent, were not very successful in navigating even the, the simplest mazes. In reality, there was no difference between the two. And yet, without fail, these students who were given maize bright rats were much more successful in helping their rats navigate through the maze. And those who were given maize doll rats without fail, were less successful, even though there was no real difference between the two. Rosenthal concluded that our expectations have a profound effect on how we act towards something or someone and how they then react in turn. I, I read a book by a man named Bruce Wilkinson who talked about a time where he was teaching uh, multiple sections of a college class. And he was told that section two of this class was the, the gifted students. Uh, and so he enjoyed that class immensely. And he always loved going to that class. And he could see just the, the effort and the excitement that those students put into it. And they were all getting better grades. At the end of the semester, however, he found out that they had canceled the gifted program. And that there was nothing different with section two as of any other class. And yet he went to the grade book. And without fail, that class had done better, had been more successful because of his attitude, because of his expectations. Our expectations have a profound effect upon our emotions, our attitudes, and our actions and others' reactions to us. And, and we really don't need experiments to teach us this. If, if I were to uh, tell you today, or let's say with John and Tanya, who are new in town, uh, if after services today I told them that I wanted to take them out to supper to my favorite Mexican restaurant and, and they just have wonderful chicken quesadillas and they have mouth-watering nachos and you guys are going to love it, why, why don't you just follow me out of the driveway as we go and, and if they're, they're following me and, and we drive up the road and we park in Taco Bell, they're, they're going to react a little bit differently than if I had told them, hey, let's go grab some quick fast food. Our expectations have a profound effect on how 
we react, how we view ourselves, our jobs, our service to the Lord, how we view our brethren, our spouses, our children, how we function in relationships within the home, within the church, and even with evangelistic contacts. And so I think it's important to consider uh, and improperly direct our expectations because they will affect both our spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of those around us. And I think this is something that we see uh, talked about frequently throughout the scriptures uh, in many different facets. I recognize the Bible is not a psychology book. Um, It has a lot to tell us, though, uh, about how we use our emotions and our attitudes um, and how we can handle expectations to grow in our own spiritual walk to help us find peace and contentment in the Christian life and help us exhort and encourage those around us. First of all, I want us to consider the idea of positive expectations. I think sometimes we are tempted to become critical, to become cynical towards others or negative um, in our expectations, even towards ourselves. And we write a narrative in our own mind uh, that is filled with tragedy and is filled with disappointment. And we think, well, surely that person is not going to act the way that that we want them to or that they should. And and we begin to to operate under Murphy's Law that anything that could go wrong is going to go wrong uh, in our circumstances and our choices Uh, and the lives of those around us. But what we see is that that attitude is not going to build up other people. It's not going to build us up in our service to the Lord. Ultimately, it's going to tear down. And love in our relationship with other people does not aim to tear down. Love is going to aim to build up. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where God gives us this thorough description of love. One of the things that he defines for us about love in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 is that love believes all things and love hopes all things. What does that mean? Uh, Is he just saying that that love is gullible? That, you know, it's just going to believe anything uh, regardless of the evidence? I don't think that's exactly the, the point here. The idea is that love believes the best about other people. That love hopes the best about other people. Uh, That love is going to be positive and hopeful. It's going to frame others in the best light possible. When we hear something negative about somebody else, our first reaction isn't going to be, oh, yeah, I I bet it's even worse than than what I heard. No, my my first reaction is going to be, well, you know, uh, I'm going to hope the best about this situation. Maybe I heard it wrong. Maybe uh, the, the information is not exactly correct. Uh, it's going to expect good things from other in the, in the present and in the future, and it's going to act that way towards other people. That's what love does. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 links the ideas of love and honor. It says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor um, or in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. And we see this this link between love and honor, love and appreciation, love and respect throughout the scriptures. Uh, In Ephesians 5, in the marriage relationship, we see love and respect going hand in hand. Well, how how does that express itself? We, We show honor by expressing positive attitudes, positive expectations towards other. Think about it in this context. If, if you and your relationship with your children 
are going to show love towards them, what type of expectations are you going to express towards them? If you love your children, are you going to go into their room at night before they go to bed and say, by the way, I just want you to know that you're never going to amount to anything and that you're going to be a bum the rest of your life. And, and I just really don't expect much out of you. Um, and you're, you're going to grow up to, to be a horrible parent. Um, I, I can't imagine anything good coming out of your life. Well, of course love wouldn't do that. That's ridiculous. No, we're, we're going to express positive expectations. We're going to accentuate the positive. We're going to look at what they did today, and we're going to say, you know, you, you were a good servant here, and I really appreciate that. And, and I, you know, you're going to grow up to be a, a good father or a good mother. You're going to be, grow up to be a good spouse. You're going to grow up to be, be a, a diligent servant in the Lord. Um, we're going to express honor and appreciation and build up that individual. Love doesn't tear down. Love builds up. And that means that even maybe when there is some fault, even when there is something wrong, we are going to strive to express these positive expectations, to build up, to encourage them to succeed, to overcome their faults, overcome their failures. Um, and that gets to the idea of exhorting others. Love is going to, to write a positive narrative towards others, and, and, and that involves exhorting and encouraging um, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, we are urged, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but encouraging or exhorting one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. One of the responsibilities that we have as Christians is to exhort or encourage others. How do we accomplish that? What, what does that look like? What does that involve? The word exhort literally means to, to call near or to call to one's side. Uh, and there, I think there are many different ways that we can accomplish encouraging and exhorting. But when I get that picture of, of calling to one's side, uh, it brings up some memories in my mind of some people in my life that I, I believe truly exhorted me. I, I think of people like Bill Wright who was uh, a man in Lincoln, Nebraska, who after services on, on more than one occasion um, came up to me and took me by the arm, came to my side, held me next to him, looked in my eye, and told me how much he appreciated me singing out in the service. And, and told me that he expected good things from me and, and, and spoke positively about the things that he saw in my life that he wanted to encourage and that he wanted to build up. I think about uh, the, the years in high school where I began preaching, and uh, I, I did a pretty lousy job quite a bit of the time. And yet, we, we have, there were people who came up to me and expressed appreciation for what I was doing, expressed positive expectations about my growth, my future in the Lord's kingdom. Um, I, I think about people like Randy Duvall, uh, who, who had that same attitude of coming up, drawing me to his side. And, and expressing those things to me. Um, and, and obviously, uh, you know, there, there is a balance there. We don't want to go to the point of, of trying to give people a big head or anything like that. That wasn't the goal of any of these people. Their, their goal was to encourage me, to build me up, so that I, I might continue down that path that God wants me to go down. That, uh, express that affirmation, those positive expectations to encourage me. And I think that's something that we see throughout the scriptures. Um, and this is a point that we have made 
multiple times in, in lessons recently, and so I won't belabor the point, but just in case you were, were sleeping when we studied Hebrews or, or anything like that, we, we see Paul throughout his epistles and the Hebrew writer um, uh, encouraging and expressing confidence in brethren. If you look in Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9, remember in the context here that uh, the writer here has just rebuked these brethren for not being where they need to be spiritually, for being immature spiritually. By this point, they should be teachers. By this point, they should be on the meat of the word. They need somebody to teach them the basic principles again. They need milk. And he, in chapter 6, he warns them about the possible consequences of them continuing down this path, of them drifting away from the Lord. And yet, in chapter 6 and verse 9, after this harsh rebuke, what does he say? We read, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. What, what does the writer do? What, what does God here in the inspiration of the Spirit do for us? Even after having to address some fault, something wrong, he expresses confidence. I know you're going to do it. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Think about the church in Corinth. The church at Corinth, that, that was the church that had no problems, right? Well, the church in Corinth had, had a, a bunch of different problems. Division, carnality, sexual immorality, disorder, and chaos. Um, they were turning the Lord's Supper into a self-indulgent feast. They had all these issues that Paul is having to address. And yet, in 2 Corinthians, what does Paul say to them? 2 Corinthians 7 14 through 16, one thing that he says there, he says, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. We're talking about the Corinthians here. And yet Paul expresses confidence in them. In fact, in chapter 9, when he's talking about the collection for the saints, he tells them, I, I don't even need to tell you anything about this. I know that you're going to do it. And I've been boasting to Titus about you. Here he, he takes, even though there's all these negative things that he could focus on, and he addresses them as they need to be addressed. He takes the time to focus on this positive thing and build them up for that and encourage them that, that he has confidence in their love. He has confidence in their generosity. Um, and he expresses that to them for their encouragement to exhort and build them up. Galatians 5 and verse 10, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. Philippians 1, 6 through 7, it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 4, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you that uh, you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Philemon 1, verse 21, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. I'd say that is a pretty clear pattern throughout the scriptures. And yet what I'm very tempted to do at times, and what I'm sure Paul would have been tempted to do in working with people like the Corinthians, is to say, oh boy, I have to do this again. I have to talk to them about this sin that is in their midst. I have to talk to them about this wrong thing that they're doing. You know, they're probably not even going to listen to me. They're, this is probably going to be a disaster. Well, if, if that's our expectations, many times that's exactly what's going to happen. But if we, like Paul, can express this confidence, have this positive attitude, the positive attitude of love towards other people, many times it's going to encourage, build them up, exhort them, to do what it is that God wants them to be doing. 
He didn't let his expectations be guided by his past experiences or by his worry about what might go wrong. He let his expectations be led by love. He believed all things and hoped all things about these brethren. We need to write a positive narrative in our minds for our families, for our brethren, for our churches, for evangelistic contacts that we work with. We need to express that to them so that we might lift them up, exhort them, encourage them um, to succeed in the way that God desires for them to succeed. But that's just one aspect here. And if that's the only aspect of expectations that we focus on, we're we're missing the, the bigger picture. Because we also need to have and express realistic expectations. There's a big difference between a positive expectation and a burdensome and overbearing expectation. There's much difference in talking to your child about his upcoming baseball game and saying, well, I I expect nothing less than a win. And and you better lead your team to victory. Well, that's a positive expectation, right? Well, no, it's it's a burdensome and uh, it's an overbearing expectation. That's a big difference between saying, you're going to do great at today's game today. Um, you know, I, you, you've been practicing hard, and, and I have confidence in, in your abilities. Well, there's a huge difference between something that is encouraging and upbuilding and something that becomes some unrealistic standard uh, that is going to discourage. Well, I can never attain to that. I can never reach that. Uh, I might as well not even try. There's a difference between motivating and pressuring. Unrealistic expectations can be harmful and discouraging rather than motivating and helpful. And this applies as we deal with our children. This applies as we deal with brethren, as we deal with our our spouses. Uh, And it applies in many different areas. One area that I want us to consider this is in our attitude towards the Christian life itself. And that's why we read Luke chapter 14 just a moment ago. What are our expectations for what the Christian life should be? for what it should look like, for what uh, we are going to experience as disciples of Jesus. Jesus wanted to make sure that people did not enter into discipleship with unrealistic expectations of what being a Christian was going to involve. He wanted us to understand exactly what we were getting into. Before we get to Luke chapter 14, turn to Luke chapter 9 for a moment. Luke chapter 9, verse 57 and 58. Here we see some people approach Jesus, and we're just going to focus on the first one here in verse 57. But it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. You know, imagine if we had somebody come in off the street today, come into this assembly and say, I want to follow Jesus. I, I want to commit my life to him. I want to do whatever it is. Uh, that, that, that the Bible tells me to do, I, will, will you baptize me? We, we would be thrilled with that, and we should be. And I, I'm not saying we shouldn't. Um, and yet Jesus here, while I'm sure he is thrilled at those who truly desire to follow him, he, he gives a warning in verse 40, 58. It says, And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' excitement at at, at getting followers here is tempered by uh, uh, wanting them to understand what it is that they're getting into. 
You know, some of these people who are wanting to follow Jesus may think, well, this is going to be the, the king, earthly king, who's going to overthrow Rome, and I, I want to join his army. Um, and, and we're going to have great success in this, and this is going to be great. Jesus says, if you follow me, I want you to understand what that involves. Uh, you're not going to have a place to sleep every night. You're not going to be well provided for every day. It's going to involve some, some sacrifice. We need to make sure that as we talk to other people uh, about the Christian life, they understand the commitment that they're getting into. We don't want them to have unrealistic expectations of what that involves. We, we don't just want rocky and thorny soil. Jesus warns against those who, who accept the gospel with great joy and spring up and yet in the time of trial wither away quickly. People need to understand that the Christian life that they are committing themselves to is not easy and painless. Um, that it is going to be a difficult road. It is going to require self-sacrifice. In Luke chapter 14 that we read earlier, Jesus encouraged disciples to count the cost. To understand exactly what it was that they were getting to. Yes, Jesus uh, teaches that uh, his yoke is light, his, his burden um, is light, that we will have peace and that we will have joy, that we will have hope. Uh, clearly, Jesus teaches that discipleship is, is worth it. He's not trying to discourage people from being disciples here, but he is trying to get them to count the cost. That while discipleship involves great blessing and hope, it also involves hardship and sacrifice. We should not expect that we will always have the answers, that everything will always make sense, that God will always answer our prayers the way that we want, or our lives will be characterized by health, wealth, and prosperity. If that's our expectation coming into the Christian life, it's going to have a profound effect upon our spiritual well-being. When things get hard, we are quickly going to wither away because that's not what we signed up for. We need to have a realistic expectation about what following Jesus means. And along with that, we need to have a realistic expectation for our own service to the Lord. We need to make sure that we are not expecting more of ourselves spiritually than God does. I, I think sometimes we grow discouraged as we look at our own lives. Um, because we are measuring ourselves by a different standard than what God is measuring us by. Uh, and, and certainly this problem can go both ways, but, but I think it is legitimate for us to consider that sometimes we grow discouraged because we are, are setting uh, some bar in our own heart uh, of what we want to be able to accomplish in the Lord's work. That, that is different than the gifts and the opportunities that he has granted us. Matthew chapter 25 talks about the, the parable of the talents. And remember, as Jesus teaches this parable, he uh, talks about the master who gives to, to one servant five talents, to another steward he gives two, and to another he gives one talent. Now, each of them are, are richly gifted. Talent uh, is uh, a measurement of weight. It's not a little coin. Uh, and uh, one talent is about the amount that one man could, could carry uh, as a burden by himself uh, successfully. So it, it's a very large sum for any of these people. But as the master comes back and he takes account of, of what these different servants have done, what, what do we see with each of the servants? The five-talent man has used those talents. He's produced five more talents. 
And the master is thrilled with him and gives him reward. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now the two-talent man comes up. And the two-talent man, well, he didn't produce five talents. He only produced two. What's the master's reaction to him? Is it, well, you know, this guy, he, he did a lot better than you did, but, but it's okay. Uh, you can still enter into the joy of the Lord. We, we don't see any difference in the reaction between the master towards the five-talent man and the two-talent man, do we? And in fact, if that one-talent man had used his talent and he had only produced one talent more, do you think there would have been any difference in the master's reaction? No. It's only when we do not use what God has given us. It's not ultimately about the output. It's about whether or not we are using what God has given us. I've heard the illustration before. If you had uh, a bucket, a pitcher, and a cup, and you wanted to fill them each with water, uh, you know, for that bucket, you're going to Put a lot more water into it than you are that cup. Now, what, what if you uh, took a bucket full of water and tried to pour it into that cup? Well, it doesn't work that way. We see the master here gave to each according to his abilities, and that's what was expected in return. And when I, as a one-talent man or a two-talent man, look at that five-talent man over there and say, well, if I'm not performing like he is, you know, if I'm not able to accomplish the same things that so-and-so is able to accomplish, then... Well, I might as well not even try. I think that's exactly what kept the one-talent man from doing what he could have. You know, why, why didn't Jesus change it around and say the five-talent man was the one who, who didn't use his talents? Well, I think it's because that one-talent man is, is more prone to the discouragement that is going to keep him from using what he has. We need to make sure that we are not measuring ourselves by somebody else's standards. Somebody else with different opportunities, different talents, different abilities. I need to make sure I'm using what God has given me and not growing discouraged because I don't have five talents. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14 through 18, talks about this idea within the body. We read there that uh, we can't say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. Because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. If I'm not able to accomplish what so-and-so is able to accomplish, well, then I, I just, I'm really no good to the body. Now, we should not be discouraged when we do not have the abilities or resources of somebody else. When we encounter limitations that are outside of our control, God does not expect the kneecap to do the function of the hand or the pinky finger to do the function of the eye. We need to make sure that we are functioning not on some unrealistic standard that we have set for ourselves, but that we are striving to use what God has given us in our service to him. If we are measuring ourselves by the standard of somebody else whose abilities we admire, we can quickly become discouraged. We need to be content using the talents that God has given us. But that goes along with our expectations towards the service of others. 1 Corinthians 12 warns us against the opposite attitude of saying, well, you know, I, I have no need of you. If, if you're not fulfilling the function that I filled, then, well, you, you don't have much to offer. We need to make sure that we are not setting uh, oppressive expectations on those around us, not measuring others by our own personal standard. Matthew chapter 23, in talking about the Pharisees, it says they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Whereas Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light, 
uh, in one sense. The Pharisees here were weighing down people with unnecessary and unrealistic standards of piety, hypocritical standards uh, of outward piety. Religion became more about what they couldn't do than about what they should be doing. They became more critical than helpful and encouraging, more judgmental than loving or merciful. When we make pleasing God something that is unattainable except for the select few who are holding to our hypocritical standard of outward righteousness, um, then we are going to do great harm to the kingdom. We need to make sure that we are not uh, operating on our own personal standards, uh, putting burdens on other people that they are not able to bear. We must learn to be merciful, compassionate, and patient with the weak and the immature. Uh, other people are going to be at different stages of growth than we are, and there are going to be those that are weak in our midst, and we need to be compassionate and helpful as they seek to grow. Colossians 3 verse 21 and applying this to the family setting says, Father, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. What does it mean to exasperate your children? Um, to provoke them, to anger, to stir up negative emotions within them. I, I think there's probably a lot of different applications of how we might fall to that. But I think one specific application is setting unrealistic expectations that our children are not able to attain to. And that they feel they, they can never please mom and dad, they can never be successful, and so why even try? I think that's one application here of exasperating our children. Uh, and so we need to be careful that we are not setting oppressive expectations, but encouraging expectations. Um, and I think this implies in the marriage relationship as well. Uh, you know, if, if you come home from work and you expect your wife to, uh, you know, have vacuumed and dusted and decorated the house and have a three-course meal prepared and be dressed in her nicest outfit to greet you at the door, and she is in sweatpants and a sloppy ponytail cleaning up spit up from the floor, you know, there, there's going to be a much different attitude in, in how you react to that than if you had come home appreciating the work that she was doing with those children uh, and the, the burdens that she had to bear during the day. Our expectations uh, affect how we treat other people and, and it's going to affect whether or not my wife is encouraged by what she accomplished today or whether or not she is discouraged because I'm not, she's not meeting my unrealistic standard. And so we need to make sure that we are setting healthy expectations, encouraging, choosing to appreciate the things um, about other people and building them up in that way. And expressing confidence uh, when, when maybe my wife feels like she, she can't uh, accomplish something. Saying, well, no, no, I, I know you're capable of that. Uh, you, you can do a lot more than, than you believe you can. Uh, and do that in an encouraging way. And so I think this applies in many different areas, but we need to be setting positive and realistic expectations. Uh, but Finally, and I think most importantly, we need to be setting godly expectations. How do I know what is a realistic expectation, what's an unrealistic expectation? How do I know what is a positive expectation, what is just being overly idealistic? Well, ultimately, I let God set the standards. God's expectations of me, of my brethren, of my family are ultimately what matter most. Um, and I need to mirror 
the expectations for my family, the expectations for my brethren after what God's expectations of those people are. Many times we fall into the trap of allowing society, allowing our family, allowing our brethren even to be the basis of our expectations. We need to make sure that we are letting God have control of that. Society will lead us astray. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What's the standard? Here, well, many times we're tempted to, to mold to the standard of the earth what they expect for us to be. Uh, that's going to lead us far afield from what God expects. Our standard needs to be the will of God. We need to be conforming and molding our lives after his expectations. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you want to turn over there, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting verse 3. Here we read about the expectations of the world. Starting in verse 3, Peter writes, For the time... Already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires, or we could insert in there, expectations of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The world is going to look at us, and we're not going to meet their expectations. We don't want to meet their expectations because, in the context here, we are not going to be judged by their expectations. Many times that's what we're most worried about. Well, how are others going to judge me? How are others going to view me? It's going to lead us away from the standards that the judge has set for us. At the end of the day, what's going to matter is how God views my life. We must determine to rebel against peer pressure, against social stigmas, be willing to stand out so that we may be standing with God, with his expectations and his standards. And brethren are not even always a safe haven of, of, of expectations to follow. Um, they can't set the standard for us. I, ideally, hopefully, our brethren and our family are going to be conforming to the expectations of God, and those are going to be the expectations that they communicate to us. But if if they are the basis of our expectations, it will lead us astray. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 17, we see the Pharisees expected Jesus' disciples to be fasting like themselves and then the disciples of John. But Jesus warns them there not to put new wine in old wineskins. Uh, he's not going to conform to their personal traditions and expectations. He is going to follow what uh, is right in the eyes of God uh, and is appropriate at this time. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1 through 9, the Pharisees are offended that Jesus' disciples do not wash their hands like the Jewish elders required. And again, Jesus f urges them to focus on the commands of God instead of their own human traditions um, so that their worship would not be in vain. Um, many times the expectations of brethren are going to stray from the expectations of God. And we need to make sure that, that our, while, while certainly, as we've talked about previously, we want to give thought for what's right in the sight of all men, we don't want to cause unnecessary stumbling to others, um, that our desire is not just to fit in with what the expectations of other brethren are. Our desire is to conform to the will of God, no matter what that means. Galatians 1 and verse 10, if you'll turn your Bibles over there. 
Here Paul writes, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If we want to call ourselves disciples of Christ, bondservants of Christ, we must be allowing him to set the standards. We must make sure that uh, it is his will and his desires, his pleasure, that is guiding our lives, that is guiding our families, that is guiding uh, our congregation. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and through 23, we see those who were meeting the outward expectations of what spirituality and uh, righteousness was supposed to involve. Uh, they say, have we not cast out many demons in your name? Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? Outwardly, they were meeting the expectations of what it looked like to be a spiritual or religious individual. And yet God says to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Others' expectations will lead us astray. We need to make sure in our expectations for ourselves and our expectations for our family and for our brethren that we are letting God set the standard. Expectations are powerful things. They affect our emotions, our attitudes, our actions, whether we notice it or not. And if we want to be effective in doing the Lord's work, um, we need to give thought to our expectations towards other people um, and towards setting the proper expectations for ourselves. Are we letting God take control in that? Are we abiding by his standards, the bar that he has set? What God expects of you today, if you have not conformed your life to his will is that you acknowledge what he has done for you. That you acknowledge the great blessings that he has provided in your life. That you acknowledge the sacrifice that he has made on your behalf so that you could be cleansed of your sins, so that you could be saved. And that you submit your life to him by washing away the sins by his grace in the waters of baptism, by committing your life to him, being raised to walk in newness of life, to have a hope of eternity with him. Do you need to make that commitment today? Do you need to conform your life to the expectations and standards of God? At the end of the day, that's what you're going to be judged by, and that's all that matters. If you in any way need to make a change, you need to make some public change that we could help you with, we ask that you'll make it known at this time.